0: Chapter 56 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dread, Chapter 56, Flight. The party of fugitives which started for the north was divided into two bands. Harry, Lisette, Tiff and his two children assumed the character of a family, of whom Harry took the part of father, Lisette the nurse, and Tiff the manservant. The money which Clayton had given them enabling them to furnish a respectable outfit, they found no difficulty in taking passage under this character at Norfolk on board a small coasting vessel bound to New York. Never had Harry known a moment so full of joyous security as that which found him out at sea in a white-winged vessel flying with all speed toward the distant port of safety. Before they neared the coast of New York, however, there was a change in their prospects. The blue sky became darkened, and the sea, before treacherously smooth, began to rise in furious waves. The little vessel was tossed baffling about by contrary and tumultuous winds. When she began to pitch and roll in all the violence of a decided storm, Lisette and the children cried for fear. Old Tiff exerted himself for their comfort to the best of his ability. Seated on the cabin floor with his feet firmly braced, he would hold the children in his arms and remind them what Miss Nina had read to them of the storm that came down on the lake of Gennesareth and how Jesus was in the hinder part of the boat asleep on a pillow "'And he's dar yet,' Tiff would say. "'I wish they'd wake him up then,' said Teddy, disconsolately. "'I don't like this dreadful noise. What does he let it be so for?' Before the close of that day the fury of the storm increased. The horrors of the night can only be told by those who have felt the like.' the plunging of the vessel, the creaking and straining of the timbers, the hollow and sepulchral sound of waves striking against the hull, and the shiver with which, like a living creature, she seemed to tremble at every shock, were things frightful even to the experienced sailor, much more so to our trembling refugees. The morning dawned only to show the sailors their bark drifting helplessly toward a fatal shore whose name is a sound of evil omen to seamen. It was not long before the final crash came, and the ship was wedged among rugged rocks, washed over every moment by the fury of the waves. All hands came now on deck for the last chance of life. One boat after another was attempted to be launched, but it was swamped by the furious waters. When the last boat was assayed, there was a general rush of all on board. It was the last chance for life. In such hours the instinctive fear of death often overbears every other consideration, and the boat was rapidly filled by the hands of the ship, who, being strongest and most accustomed to such situations, were more able to effect this than their passengers. The captain alone remained standing on the wreck, and with him Harry, Lisette, Tiff, and the children. "'Pass along,' said the captain, hastily pressing Lisette on board, simply because she was the first that came to hand. For the good Lord's sake," said Tiff, put the children on board. There won't be no room for me, and tain't no matter. You go aboard and take care of them," he said, pushing Harry along. Harry mechanically sprang into the boat and the captain after him. The boat was full. Oh, do take poor Tiff, do," said the children, stretching their hands after their old friend. "'Clear away, boys, the boat's full!' shouted a dozen voices, and the boat parted from the wreck and sunk in eddies and whirls of boiling waves, foam and spray, and went rising and sinking, onward, driven toward the shore. A few, looking backwards, saw a mighty green wave come roaring and shaking its crested head, lift the hull as if it had been an eggshell, then dash it in fragments upon the rocks. This was all they knew till they themselves were cast wet and dripping, but still living upon the sands. A crowd of people were gathered upon the shore, who, with the natural kindness of humanity on such occasions, gathered the drenched and sea-beaten wanderers into neighboring cottages, where food and fire and changes of dry clothing awaited them. The children excited universal sympathy and attention, and so many mothers of the neighborhood came bringing offerings of clothing that their lost wardrobe was soon very tolerably replaced. But nothing could comfort them for the loss of their old friend. In vain, the little dears were tempted with offers of cake and custard and every imaginable eatable. They sat with their arms around each other, quietly weeping. No matter how unsightly the casket may be which holds all the love there is on earth for us, be that love lodged in the heart of the poorest and most uneducated, the whole world can offer no exchange for the loss of it. Tiff's devotion to these children had been so constant, so provident, so absolute, that it did not seem to them possible they could live a day without him. And the desolation of their lot seemed to grow upon them every hour. Nothing would restrain them. They would go out and look up and down, if perhaps they might meet him. But they searched in vain, and Harry, who had attended them, led them back again, disconsolate. "'I say, Fanny,' said Teddy, after they had said their prayers and lain down in their little bed. "'Has Tiff gone to heaven?' "'Certainly he has,' said Fanny, if ever anybody went there. "'Won't he come and bring us pretty soon?' said Teddy. "'He won't want to be there without us, will he?' "'Oh, I don't know,' said Fanny. "'I wish we could go.' The world is so lonesome. And thus talking, the children fell asleep. But it is written in an ancient record. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And verily, the next morning, Teddy started up in bed and awakened his sister with a cry of joy. Oh, Fanny, Fanny, Tiff isn't dead. I heard him laughing. Fanny started up, and sure enough, there came through the partition which separated their little sleeping room from the kitchen, a sound very much like Tiff's old, unctuous laugh. One would have thought no other pair of lungs could have rolled out the jolly ho-ho-ho with such a joyous fullness of intonation. The children hastily put on their clothes and opened the door. Why, breast the Lord, poppet's is show nuff, ho-ho-ho said Tiff, stretching out his arms, while both the children ran and hung upon him. "'Oh, Tiff, we are so glad! Oh, we thought you was drowned! We've been thinking so all night!' "'No, no, no, breast the Lord! You don't get shed of old Tiff that our way! Won't get shed of him till you's fetched up and able to do for yourselves!' "'Oh, Tiff, how did you get away?' Laws, why, childrens, t'was a very straight way. I told the Lord about it,' says I." good lord you knows i don't care nothin' about it on my own count but pears like these children is so young and tender i couldn't leave them no way and so i asked him if he wouldn't just please to help me cause i knowed he had the power of the winds and the sea well Sure enough, that our big wave toted me clear right on up on the show, but it took my breath and my senses so I didn't fairly know where I was. And the peoples that found me took me a good bit way to a house down here, and they was mazing good to me and rubbed me with the hot flannels and give me one thing and another, so that I woke up quite pert this morning and I came out to look up my poppets, cause you see, it was kind of born in my mind that I should find you. And now you see, children, you mark my words, the Lord been with us in six troubles and in seven. And he'll bring us to good luck yet. Tell you to sea had washed that dare out of me for all its banging and bruising.' And Tiff chuckled in the fullness of his heart and made a joyful noise. His words were so far accomplished that before many days the little party, rested and refreshed, and with the losses of their wardrobe made up by friendly contributions, found themselves under the roof of some benevolent friends in New York. Thither, in due time, the other detachment of the party arrived, which had come forward under the guidance of Hannibal, by ways and means which, as they may be wanted for others in like circumstances, we shall not further particularize. Harry, by the kind patronage of friends, soon obtained employment, which placed him and his wife in a situation of comfort. Millie and her grandson, and old Tiff and his children, were enabled to hire a humble tenement together, and she, finding employment as a pastry cook in a confectioner's establishment, was able to provide a very comfortable support, while Tiff presided in the housekeeping department. After a year or two, an event occurred of so romantic a nature that, had we not ascertained it as a positive fact, we should hesitate to insert it in our voracious narrative. Fanny's mother had an aunt in the Peyton family, a maiden lady of very singular character, who, by habit of great penuriousness, had amassed a large fortune, apparently for no other purpose than that it should some day fall into the hands of somebody who would know how to enjoy it. Having quarreled shortly before her death with all her other relatives, she cast about in her mind for ways and means to revenge herself on them by placing her property out of their disposal. She accordingly made a will, bequeathing it to the heirs of her niece, Susan, if any such heirs existed, and if not, the property was to go to an orphan asylum. By chance the lawyer's letter of inquiry was addressed to Clayton, who immediately took the necessary measures to identify the children and put them in possession of the property. Tiff now was glorious. He always noted. He said that Miss Sue's children would come to luck and that the Lord would open a door for them, and he had. Fanny, who was now a well-grown girl of twelve years, chose Clayton as her guardian. And by his care she was placed at one of the best New England schools, where her mind and her person developed rapidly. Her brother was placed at school in the same town. As for Clayton, after some inquiry and consideration, he bought a large and valuable tract of land in that portion of Canada where the climate is least severe, and the land the most valuable for culture. To this place he removed his slaves, and formed there a township which is now one of the richest and finest in the region. Here he built for himself a beautiful residence where he and his sister live happily together, finding their enjoyment in the improvement of those by whom they are surrounded. It is a striking comment on the success of Clayton's enterprise that the neighboring white settlers who at first looked coldly upon him, fearing he would be the means of introducing a thriftless population among them, have been entirely won over, and that the value of the improvements which Clayton and his tenants have made has nearly doubled the price of real estate in the vicinity. So high a character have his schools born that the white settlers in the vicinity have discontinued their own, preferring to have their children enjoy the advantages of those under his and his sister's patronage and care. Footnote. These statements are all true of the Elgin Settlement, founded by Mr. King, a gentleman who removed and settled his slaves in the south of Canada. End of footnote. Harry is one of the head men of the settlement and is rapidly acquiring property and consideration in the community. A large farm, waving with some acres of fine wheat, with its fences and outhouses in excellent condition, marks the energy and thrift of Hannibal, who, instead of slaying men, is great in felling trees and clearing forests. He finds time, winter evenings, to read with none to molest or make afraid. His oldest son is construing Caesar's commentaries at school and often reads his lesson of an evening to his delighted father, who willingly resigns the palm of scholarship into his hands. As to our merry friend Jem, he is the life of the settlement. Liberty, it is true, has made him a little more sober and a very energetic and capable wife soberer still. But yet Jim has enough and to spare of drollery, which makes him an indispensable requisite in all social gatherings. He works on his farm with energy and repels with indignation any suggestion that he was happier in the old times when he had abundance of money and very little to do. One suggestion more we almost hesitate to make, lest it should give rise to unfounded reports, but we are obliged to speak the truth. Anne Clayton, on a visit to a friend's family in New Hampshire, met with Livy Ray, of whom she had heard Nina speak so much, and very naturally the two ladies fell into a most intimate friendship. Visits were exchanged between them, and Clayton, on first introduction, discovered the lady he had met in the prison in Alexandria. The most intimate friendship exists between the three, and of course in such cases reports will arise, but we assure our readers we have never heard of any authentic foundation for them, so that, in this matter, we can clearly leave everyone to predict the result according to their own fancies. We have now two sketches, with which the scenery of our book must close. End of Chapter 56 FLIGHT Recording by Pete McKelvin.